Hi, this is Dr. Jane Battenberg, author of Change Within, Change the World. In this weekly podcast, I interview changemakers who are at the cutting edge of new thought and consciousness awareness. Join me as we change within and change the world together. Our guest today is Loxley Clovis from Maui to discuss backyard gardening, permaculture, fungi, and his latest magazine publication, Forests or Deserts. Loxley is a permaculture gardener, farmer, teacher, historian, and mycologist. He runs Backyard Regeneration Permaculture and Mushroom Consulting. And you can find out more about that at backyardregeneration.com. Loxley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Jane. I'm a big fan of your work. <laughs> and I of yours. So I thought maybe you could just start with telling us about a, a recent trip you took down to the uh, to a Mayan village in southern Mexico and how you got there and what you learned. Recently, my partner and I, we decided to have a honeymoon and we decided that we really, really wanted to go visit the Mayan world. And we have uh, good friends there um, in the Mayan area who invited us to stay with them. And we were really, really excited to accept their invitation. And at the same time, I had for many years been studying traditional Mayan agroforestry. And I was very, very interested to go and see a traditional type of gardening that was sustainable for thousands upon thousands of years. It's a model of farming and gardening that's very different from what we're accustomed to in the 12,000 years of farming history in the West. And it basically relates to using the patterns of the forest in the design of the gardens. And so it's a really, really interesting uh, design system and spiritual system as well. And it's something that's fascinated me for years. And um, I was really excited to actually see one of these systems uh, called the Milpa system in person. How did you get there? I mean, give us a, uh, a visual of how, uh, of what the village was like and where you stayed and how you got connected to them. This is a great story. So it started off in one of the cities in Southern Mexico and there's actually a museum in this city talking all about this particular group of Mayan people that live the most traditional lifestyle. They wear the traditional Mayan clothes. They wear their hair the traditional way. They speak a very ancient form of a Mayan dialect. And they not only do they eat their traditional Mayan diet, but they also grow their crops in a traditional Mayan way, which I think is really important. So we went to the museum dedicated to this group of people and from there, we were able to connect from the museum with the eco-tourist guides. And they were able to connect us with the Ecotourism Bureau deep, deep, deep in the jungle, where they welcome folks into their village. And they want to really show them how they live in the world with an extremely light footprint, extremely respectful to all living beings. And so... Basically, we, we arranged with them, with their ecotourism board, and um, we rode on a public transportation van all the way deep, deep, deep into 
one of the deepest jungles of Central America on this road at probably 15 miles an hour, making stop after stop after stop so people could be picked up to go to work or to go back home. Deep, deep, deep in the jungle. And then we finally came to a clearing where we found this just ancient village of people living a very traditional lifestyle. And they set us up in their uh, eco-tourism housing unit. Very, very adventurous. <laughs> <laughs> was it was it comfortable staying there? Oh, it was extremely comfortable. The people were so welcoming. Everybody was so excited. They would they would wave to us. They would talk with us. the The people at the the housing hotel unit were were very very nice, and all the accommodations were lovely. And it was built all with natural local materials. And yeah, I mean, it was just incredible. One of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. So you ate with them? Yeah, we did. And in fact, um, the, there was one local restaurant and the man who ran it, his father lived to be, I think he said 125 years old. And he was adamant that um, he lived to be that long because he ate the traditional Mayan diet and he didn't eat a lot of the stuff that's been imported uh, into, into the Mayan world recently. Wow. Did you see any snakes? <laughs> uh, no. And I was actually, you know, I, I had my eye out because I thought, oh, I'm going to a jungle in Central America. I got to keep an eye out for snakes and jaguars and whatnot. But um, no, we actually didn't see too many snakes. We did see a toucan in the wild, which was nice. That was cool. We also saw a scarlet macaw in flight, not at that particular village, but at a place near there. And so what was the, what's the most exciting, uh, extraordinary, unusual part about how the Mayans relate to the forest? So I think what struck me the most about my, my visit there is that when I first went there, I had this very human-centric, anthropocentric view of how the Mayans practice their gardening, their shifting Sweden agriculture, if you will. And I just imagine in these forest gardens in a way that they were just growing all the food, fuel, fiber, medicine, timber for them. And to an extent, that's true. They're very, very keen about planting all of those things and planting them using the forest design and the forest pattern to grow all the food, fuel, fiber, timber, medicine, and spiritual plants. But what really struck me the most was after we did our garden tour, we had a forest tour with a different man. And so these people, what you need to understand about them is that when they grow their gardens, after five to 10 years, the soils are exhausted of their annual plants, say their tomatoes and whatnot. And so it can't grow anymore. So they'll go and replant the trees and they'll replant the forest and they'll go and move and make a, another garden plot in another spot. And I always thought, oh, when they replant, they're going to replant timber crops for their houses, for example. And while that's true, what I found out on the forest tour, when we first walked in the tour with our guide, he pointed out to me a tree in the forest that a very particular bird had a symbiotic relationship with the nut of that tree. And it was very important for the, that bird's habitat to have that particular tree. And then as we went into the forest and he said, oh, this tree has a symbiotic relationship with this mammal. This tree has a symbiotic relationship 
with this insect. And he would name the tree in the Spanish language, and then he would say, and this is what we call it in our Mayan dialect, and he knew all the words, and he knew every single living plant and animal and fungal being in the forest. And what I realized uh, listening to him was that he had intentionally planted a lot of these trees, not just for timber crops for himself, but he had planted actually to create a habitat for all the, the forest animals. So it was also a, a forest restoration site, if you will. Um, these people for thousands of years, their footprint is that they leave forests in their wake and they leave forests. I think what was paradigm shifting for me was that not in an anthropocentric sense of leaving a forest for human use, um, but what they do is they leave a forest in their wake for all the living beings in their environment. And it was paradigm shifting for me and, and amazing to experience. Mm -hmm. And this man also admitted to me that he barely had a fifth, sixth grade education. He couldn't read books. So in the West, we might call him illiterate. Um, and yet he was the, one of the most literate people I've ever met. He was extremely literate about the forest and forest ecology and, and everything around him. And he was definitely one of the most knowledgeable and impressive uh, human beings that I've ever met. Hmm. And so that, that uh, led to your writing the magazine article, Forest or Deserts? Yes. And so um, last year, I spent about seven months of my life diving deep into traditional American agroforestry practices. And I discovered that the Amazon of all places, the Amazon jungle, the Amazon rainforest, when the adjectives that people usually think of when they hear uh, the Amazon jungle is wild and virgin and untouched, and what we know now from the species studies, uh, plant species studies of the Amazon, that that's um, patently untrue, that for millennia, the Amazon was a cultivated area that millions of people actually lived there before contact with the West, and that they practiced an extremely advanced form of agroforestry, that the first Europeans, when they came to visit, they might have seen a quote unquote wild jungle when in fact they were looking at a carefully curated forest garden full of food, fuel, fiber, medicine, timber, and spiritual plants. In addition to likely plants that were planted particularly for habitat for other birds and mammals and insects and possibly even fungi. Yeah, this goes really, really deep, not just in Central America, but South and North America as well. We know that they were uh, agroforests and forest gardeners, peoples, most of them. Mm. So the, the thesis of my article is that now, and I can give evidence for this if you want me to go deeper, but now that we know that the Americas had an enormous population, uh, tens of millions of people in North, Central, and South America, that they had a highly artistic culture. We have proof of that from the pottery and other things, that they maintain that kind of culture, that at some areas they reach levels of what academics call civilization. We can think of the Aztec and the Inca, for example. And that they did this, they were able to reach this 
quantity of people in a location and this high level of art because they actually did have very sophisticated agricultural practices. And my thesis is that those agricultural practices were based on perennial woody species and on forests and trees, which also provide habitats for mammals, birds, insects, and fungi. Whereas what happened in the Levant in the, the Eastern Mediterranean, the countries that hug the Eastern Mediterranean, when we think of Egypt or Lebanon or uh, Israel or Turkey, or uh, even when we think of, you know, the Garden of Eden or the Fertile Crescent, like the Tigris and Euphrates River, River Valley in modern day Syria and Iraq, we think of desert ecosystems. And why is it that a place that was once called the Fertile Crescent or the Garden of Eden, why is it a desert today? And I think what my research has led me to is that when we plow the soil, for 10,000 years and we expose all the life in the soil, all the fungi, the bacteria, the nematodes, all of that to the beating sun and the beating wind, that soil life dries out and it dies. And basically the plow goes and creates a desert. So when the soil is plowed for 10,000 years as it has been in the Levant, which gave rise to Western civilization, it left a desert in its wake. That practice left a desert in its wake. When the indigenous Amazonian people were forest gardening, and then they were forced into social isolation due to viral diseases and population decimation, and their populations dwindled, we see that they left a forest in their wake. And I think that after 10,000 years, we have a stark juxtaposition of an image I think it's interesting to take an image of the Negev desert and put it next to the image of the Amazon forest and ask ourselves, okay, if this is 10,000 years of one model of agriculture and then this is 10,000 years of another model of agriculture, what should be our best practice moving forward? Mm. Boy, that's a lot to think about. Whoa. So what do you um, do locally on your on your island of Maui, you're a permaculture gardener and you run backyard regeneration. Yeah, so on Maui, what my friends and I do, uh, we're really active in gardening. We're also active in the local farming movement. We're particularly active in maintaining our heirloom varieties of species of staple traditional Hawaiian crops, particularly kalo, otherwise in Hawaiian it's called kalo, in English it's called taro, colocasia esculenta, and other also traditional crops, uh, we work with them all, but that's the main one. And traditionally the Hawaiians would grow kalo in wet taro patches, and you can imagine a paddy like a rice paddy in Asia, where it's this fertility trap the paddy actually traps the water and traps the fertility and holds it in. So the wet paddy is actually one of the most sustainable ways to grow a food crop because you don't have runoff of your nutrients and your minerals into the, into the ocean and it doesn't hurt the ocean reefs either. So in addition to the, the paddies, and I can get into this too if you want, but the traditional Hawaiians had and have a, a very sophisticated uh, land management practice called the Ahupua'a land management system. And I believe from my research that it's one of, if not the most sophisticated land management uh, 
practice um, ever devised by human beings on planet Earth. So my friends and I, what we're interested in is supporting traditional indigenous Hawaiian land management techniques and traditional Hawaiian crops. And so these lo'i do take restoration work. They do take maintenance work. So we're actively involved in uh, lo'i, I'm sorry, is, the, is what's called in Hawaiian the, the wet taro paddy where they grow the taro, the kalo. And so we are involved in restoration work and maintenance work at various lo'i all over the island. Hmm. And have you seen a difference in the, from the work you've done? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, um, the work that we all do, well, firstly, I'm inspired and my friends and I are really, really inspired by all the people, uh, Hawaiian and non-Hawaiians, who are really excited about these traditional land management practices. So kind of the way I look at it is that the difference is made by them and that their pride in their culture and their traditional systems has given rise and inspired us to go out and help to restore these systems and maintain these systems with them. So I think that's the difference I've seen. Yes, I mean, we can look back at the end of the day and see that after we've cleaned the irrigation ditch, the Awai, we can see that the water flows better so that the kalu is sitting in cooler temperature water so that the corm at the base doesn't rot. And so at the end of the day, we certainly see a difference from our collective action. But I think the biggest difference has been made by the Hawaiian people regaining their pride, rightful pride in their traditional practices and in their language and in their culture. And that pride has inspired us to um, lend a hand. So I've seen a difference that way too. Hmm. So um, since most of us don't have the good fortune of living in Hawaii, um, are there practices that you can recommend that anyone could do? Yeah, I think that the most important thing from my perspective that I've learned in my years of gardening and farming and studying traditional systems is to care for the soil, that the soil is actually alive, that there are a lot, there's a whole symbiosis of beneficial organisms that live in the soil that are there to support the plants, to support the fungi that then go on to support the insects and the birds and the mammal populations. And they actually form the foundation and the basis of all of this, what we call sustainability or regenerativity, is that life in the soil. So actually, first recognizing that there's life in the soil, that it's there, and then secondly, recognizing the importance of it. So good soil management practices, you know, to um, involved in preventing erosion first and foremost, and then second of all, promoting life in the soil. So there's lots of things we can do for that. So I'm really interested in actively aerated compost teas. I'm really interested in no-till practices. I'm really interested in chop and drop forest gardening techniques. Anything that's there to support the life in the soil that then goes on to support the life above the soil. I think the soil is really key to understanding um, everything that's going on. And two, and then on a more spiritual level, just our interconnected symbiotic connection with everything in the cosmos, recognizing that we're not separate independent beings, we're all interdependent. So when I talk about the soil, I mean, we are interdependent with these soil organisms and our microbiome on the exterior and interior of our bodies. I mean, there's more 
bacterial and fungal cells that make up a human being than there are human DNA cells. So recognizing that we are interdependent beings with this cosmos and at a spiritual level too is also really, really important. Okay, and so fungi, tell, tell me about them. I mean, it's, you say that it's so important and yet, I don't know. I, if I have a fungus, I want to put some medicine on it. <laughs> so tell me about mm-hmm. fungi. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And about 10 years ago, I was right in, in your seat. You know, whenever I saw a mushroom popping up in the garden, I'm like, oh my gosh, should I go spray it? I had an extreme amount of mycophobia and irrational fear of fungi, as many people in the West do. Interestingly, a lot of people from Asian cultures, I noticed, have a mycophilia you know when i have some people of asian descent come and visit our farm and they see a mushroom and they run to it and they crouch and they smile and they say mushrooms and they get really really excited so it's really interesting to see how different cultures react to it (laughs) yeah i mean they're they're essentially they're really 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 important we know now from studying the fossil record and the evolution of life on earth that if it's true what they say, that in this primordial soup of the ocean, there were all of these single cell organisms, these bacteria forming and fungi forming, and then they crawled onto the sterile rock of Pangaea and life came and inhabited land. It, It crawled out of the ocean and inhabited land. Well, how did that happen? It happened because, um, the fungal lichens were able to latch on to the rocks on the shoreline and then fungal lichens that those beautifully colored floral lichens that you see growing on rocks all over the place they can they actually have the power to break down the rock chew it up and demineralize it and make those minerals available to other living beings like algae and cyanobacteria so that they can come and eat the mineral and benefit from them and start to inhabit the rock as well. And then the lichen's body falls off and it decomposes and that starts to create the first soils to make way for the plants to come on. And then when the plants come online, they need to continue to have that symbiotic relationship with the fungi on land so that the fungi can deliver the essential minerals and nutrients through the root systems, through what are called the mycorrhizae from our early, very earliest plant fossils hundreds of millions of years ago have fungal symbiotic relationships on their roots happening. I'm not talking about pathogenic. I'm not talking about parasitic fungi. I'm talking about beneficial symbiotic fungi. The very first plants that came onto land um, had this relationship and they've had it ever since. So it was there from the start and it's there today. All, um, 90 to 95% of plants have mycorrhizal beneficial symbiotic relationship with fungi. All plants, 100% of plants have endophytic fungi. That means they have fungi living within their bodies and their cells and their microbiome or what we call the mycobiome. When we look at a plant under the microscope, we find out that up to 30% of its cellular makeup is actually fungal. And these are fungi living inside of them. We don't know a lot about what the endophytes are doing. They may be part of the immune system of the plant. They may be part of the signaling of the plant to signal and move those nutrients in the soil so that the fungi can't photosynthesize. So they need the sugars from the plant. That's part of the 
relationship. So the plants photosynthesize from the sun, they turn those carbons from the sun into sugars, and they exchange those sugars with the symbiotic fungi, and then the fungi go scavenge minerals and phosphates and nitrogen from other sources in the soil and give it to the roots of the plants. And so it may be actually that these endophytic fungi, the fungi living inside the plants, are maybe directing this entire symbiotic dance. That's one of these theories. When we talk about how can we be better gardeners, how can we be better farmers, I think the fungal component and understanding that and the evolution of the fungal component is really essential to understanding how plants can thrive. So I, I, I'm hearing from what you're saying is that we shouldn't go out and buy fertilizers that are just chemicals that are made like in Monsanto or wherever they make them, that we should use uh, natural sheep dung and horse manure and stuff. And other- That's right. And in fact, we know that when we do use inorganic uh, artificial fertilizers, that we often get the plant addicted to those and then they don't form the mycorrhizal relationships necessary to actually go and scavenge it for themselves. And talking about rock phosphate, for example, if you study some of the more disastrous effects of modern farming techniques, there's these huge open pit rock phosphate mines where they mine phosphorus for agriculture and it's very unsustainable. They destroy entire ecosystems also that they can feed these inorganic fertilizers, phosphate fertilizers to the plants. There's all sorts of negative ecological things happening there. Whereas us as traditional agriculturalists and permaculturists and regenerative farmers, what we've realized studying the fungi is that the fungi are excellent scavengers of rock phosphate. Like I said, they can demineralize the rocks in the environment and give it to the plant. So it may just be as simple, for example, with phosphorus or phosphates rather, to have nice big rocks and nice stones in your garden and around your farm, and then really caring for your soil so that they do have good fungal populations, uh, mycorrhizal fungal populations to mine and deliver that phosphorus from those stones to your plants. So that's one, for example, alternative that the fungi offer to the traditional inorganic fertilizer world. Wow. We also have certain fungi. We know the the white rot fungi, the saprophytic fungi. These are the fungi that are the only things on planet Earth that can decompose lignin. This is what makes wood hard. And they have um, lignin has these very complex long chain molecules. And a lot of the toxins in our uh, environment, like with glyphosate, which is the toxin and Roundup, the herbicide, also has these long chain molecules. And we know now that certain types of white rot fungi that um, are adept at breaking down lignin, the hardness in wood, they use that same biochemical process to break down, molecularly decompose the chemicals, the toxic chemicals in glyphosate, in Roundup, in Monsanto's Roundup, and make it inert and actually clean up the land. So not only should we partner with these fungi in order to supplant a lot of the toxic chemicals that were sold for gardening and farming, but also another thing we can do is that we can partner with fungi to clean up a lot of the damage that has been done as a result of these. Wow. Okay. Well, I don't want to run out of time before I ask you, um, as you look at the world today, and we've been sequestered for 
some time and uh, and we're looking at where from here what's your take on where we're headed and what we should do well it's it's a really good question it's something i've really been struggling with and something i've really been conflicted with you know it's a really hard thing to to watch the news and these days and see all the stuff that's going on uh, that said i'm i'm really hopeful i think at this point, we're at a huge pivot point in the history of humanity and the history of life on Earth. I think that we have multiple possible futures. And I think all of us have the power individually and collectively to choose where we go forward from here at this point, given the scenario that we all face right now. On the whole, I'm, I'm really, really hopeful. And what I particularly hope for and what I invite other people to hope for is more resilience in the future and designing together for resilience and designing for resilience, not just in our backyard garden, but in our society as a whole. And really looking at how we design our, our human institutions and our human relationships and all the way down to our backyard gardens to actually design for resilience and put that in as, as one of the main principles. Because I think what this part of what is being shown to us right now is that our systems aren't designed to be resilient and um, they aren't really designed to handle an event of this magnitude. So I think it should be a, a good positive wake up call for all of us at all levels from individual to collective to, um, to make the shift towards a positive, resilient, regenerative future. So it's almost like the artificial chemicals, chemical fertilizers, uh, we've become that when we need to be more organic to be more resilient? That's right. I think that's a really good analogy. I think, and, and more on a stepping out at a bigger scope too, a lot of the structures that may have worked or really looked good on paper in the 20th century or before the 20th century are not working in the 21st century, obviously. So uh, we need some kind of reboot or... Um, system 2.0 upgrade or, or something to have something more resilient. And I, and I hope that we can all have this conversation together. I don't want to offer any particular blueprints about what that could look like. I want us all to work on this together. And I think there's a lot of amazing people and groups out there that, that have some very interesting ideas and are actually putting those ideas uh, into action. And they're being very successful with it. So do you have a website or a place if people want to converse with you about this that you want to share or, a, I don't know, phone number, email, anything? Yeah, for all topics related to farming and gardening, my website is backyardregeneration.com and you can email me at info at backyardregeneration.com if it's about farming and gardening. On storytelling and all of that, we have our podcast and our YouTube channel, The Story Connective, a lot of great content that we've produced over the years related to a lot of what we've been talking about here, Jane. And so you can go to thestoryconnective.org. You can go to your podcast app and type in The Story Connective and also The Story Connective YouTube channel and see um, those stories about resilience and possibilities if you'd like. Mm, boy, this is a lot to think about. <laughs> So any final last minute points that you would like to make before we end the show? Yeah, I'd just like to say 
Thank you very much for having me on. Like I said, I'm a big fan of your work, Jane, and I'm really, really excited for you and for this podcast. And I'm really hopeful, and I just want to reiterate that I'm really excited about the future. And I think despite what we're facing and all the hardship we're facing now, I think it's a really incredible moment to reflect and to shift and to make our way to a more resilient future together. So I just have a, a personal question. So you're in your 30s? Yes. And so you're a millennial? <laughs> That's a really good question. I kind of see myself on the, the bridge between millennial and Gen X. I mean, I'm millennial in the sense that I was definitely raised with a lot of mentors on the internet and talking with people growing up as in my formative years as a teenager, talking to people from China and from France. And I consider myself a global citizen. I don't really believe in borders as most millennials do in that sense. On the other hand, I have a really long attention span. I can watch a three-hour YouTube video, no problem. And I'm really into big, long books. And um, so I, I think I'm maybe more Gen X and, and that. I'm, I'm kind of on the border that way. And I, and I remember, I also remember a time of memorizing phone numbers, you know, that was before the internet and, and, um, and before email and before cell phones and whatnot. And so, again, I think that kind of puts me on the bridge. <laughs> oh, dear, I still do that, just in case my phone craps out. That's a really good idea. <laughs> okay, so I'm just so grateful that you are part of this uh, up-and-coming generation that's going to take the reins or has taken the reins. And I'm calling the next, these four podcasts, the Millennial Month of May. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, and thank you for your generation. You guys have really, really inspired us, everything that uh, you did in the in the 60s and 70s. I'm, I take a lot of inspiration reading a, about all of that. And I think it's really, for lack of a better word, it's really civilized um, us and our culture in a lot of ways. And, and you inspire us to to carry the torch on and hand it to the next generation as well. Good. We'll carry the torch. We're going to need it. <laughs> yeah. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jane. This was wonderful. So you don't miss any of our shows. Make sure you subscribe to podcast.changewithin.com or click the subscribe button below. Until next time, this is your host, Dr. Jane Battenberg.